Hey, how's it going? This is Wes. I'm the lead pastor of the Hub Vineyard Church. I'm so glad that you have decided to listen to this message today. I hope it encourages you. I hope that you feel feel empowered by it, and I hope that it blesses your life. Um, if you have any questions or if you want to learn more about the church, I encourage you to go to thehubvineyard.com or you can email me, wes.thehubvineyard at gmail.com. Hope you have a great week. choice, and it's why you're sitting here today, and I'm proud of you. 
and um, you know, we, we, we only have a few more years of experience on you. And so I can tell you that while your experience isn't the same as ours, our first three years of church planning were exciting and exhilarating and a ton of work. <laughs> the first two years especially, we were consumed with it. You know, we were just working so hard to get it off the ground, and it was a sacrifice of our time and our money and our energy, and it was 100% worth it. And we were tired, but we were really happy because we were doing what God had called us to do. We were doing it with friends, with people that we loved, and it was rewarding. And so some of you have been here the whole time, and I just honor you today for your sacrifice. And some of you weren't here for that part, but this is the time when you're needed the most. You know, I remember that as we were hitting like the two-year mark, and we were getting very, very tired, and the pace we were living became unsustainable. Like new leaders rose up to take our place, and all of a sudden I didn't have to be at every single church event. And it was amazing and just what we needed. So I just want to encourage you, whether you've been here the whole time or you're, you're just getting started, like, commit to this thing. Commit to the hub. Commit to what God has called you to here in Niles because it is worth it. Your sacrifice is worth it. And it is amazing that you're in your own building now. And the momentum that you have is incredible. From here, things are going to change. And I'm excited about that for you. And I, I just pray that you'll know your work is having a kingdom impact in this city. And so today we're talking about sacrifice and how it satisfies us because when we live a life of sacrifice, we get closer to Jesus and closer to the person he made us to be. And so first we're going to look at that really big type of sacrifice. And for that, the story that immediately comes to mind for me is Abraham and Isaac. Remember that time when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar? And even as I hear myself say those words, I think, what? That sounds so nuts. <laughs> Why would God ask him to do that? And it does sound nuts, but before we get into it, I want to sort of share the Abraham backstory because I think it will help bring us some context for why would God ask Abraham to do this thing. And so ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, the world had just been getting more and more broken. But the biggest brokenness of the earth was that God and humans were separated. And so by the time Abraham came along, there were a lot of different religions in the world. But nobody knew the real God, the creator God, the true God. And so God decided he was going to start over with just one man and one family, building a covenant relationship with them. And then we you know, we know that family as the nation of Israel. And, and as they grew, he would stay in relationship with them in such a way that eventually everyone on earth would be invited back into relationship with the true God. And, you know, spoiler alert, Abraham didn't know this part, but the way that God did that was through Jesus, who was a descendant of Abraham. And so if you, if you pick up in Genesis 12, where the story of Abraham starts, and you keep reading until you get to the Abraham-Isaac story in Genesis 22, we learn that um, God reveals himself as the one true God to Abraham, and then God makes two promises to Abraham, more or less. One, he promises, Abraham, go leave your home because I'm going to give you a new home, and it's going to be all yours. And then two, God is going to make a great family and nation out of Abraham, and that he'll be blessed, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through his family. And so um, Abraham gets on the road with his wife Sarah in their entourage, and they're just worshiping this one God that they've met now. And uh, they, they go to different places, and they just sort of hang out there, waiting for God to tell them if they should settle down there or not. And then over the course of many years, 
God shows up and reveals himself multiple times, and each time he shows up, he repeats that same promise to them. My hair's mud, sorry. I'm going to give you a land and a family and cause you to bless the whole earth. And each time Abraham's like, um, that's cool, God, only I don't have any place to live, and also I have no son, and I'm not going to have one because Sarah can't get pregnant. So I don't know what you're planning on doing about that, but you just keep showing up and telling me the same thing, and there's no kid and there's no home. And so, you know, while he's waiting for God to keep his promise, he and, um, he and Sarah just try to, like, help God out. Because God's obviously not doing it fast enough. Have you, have you ever tried to help God out? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Didn't go so great for me either. <laughs> so before Isaac is born, Abraham and Sarah, they try to help God out um, by Sarah giving um, Abraham her babe and giving him to, to have a child with. And she does. And that child is Ishmael, and then Sarah claims him as her own son. So then God shows up to Abraham, and he was like, no, no, this is not how we're doing this. This is, this is your way of doing it. It's not my way of doing this. And so um, what, what God says he's going to do is make Sarah's 90-year-old uterus work again, and he's going to give her a baby. And that's exactly what God does. And so um, the next way that he tries to help God out is by moving into like a new land, the Philistine territory. And he sort of makes a deal with the king, and the king lets him live there. And so he's like, cool, I got myself a homeland, all right. And, and God doesn't want that either. So Abraham keeps doing this thing where he's trying to help God out. And God is, is wanting to remind him, hey, Abraham, I'm all-powerful. I will keep my promises to you. And, but it won't come from any way that you're doing it. This is on my terms, not yours, and you're not going to force fit it. And remember the bigger picture here is that God's making a relationship with Abraham, and he wants it to be such a relationship of trust that all of Abraham's descendants would be able to trust God and let God do it God's way. That's the bigger picture here. And so here's where we finally get to Abraham and Isaac. And this is uh, an account told in Genesis 22, and I'm just going to sort of paraphrase it for you. The very first thing that we learn from the narrator of this story is that this is a test. God is testing Abraham. And he wants to see if Abraham is willing to sacrifice everything to God and willing to trust God because he has such an enormous purpose for Abraham's life. So God asks him to sacrifice his son. And in verse 2, it's actually kind of funny. He like just really emphasizes the preciousness of it. He says, take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I sh will show you. And so it's like he's, you know, making it really clear, I know how hard this is going to be for you, and I want you to do it anyways. So Abraham obeys. And just to be clear, like, God was did not want Abraham to kill his son, and he wasn't going to let him kill his son. Actually, some of the other religions at that time did practice child sacrifice, and God utterly condemned it. So it was never his plan for him to actually kill his son. Uh, but Abraham doesn't know that at the time. God, he's still learning who God is. He is the, literally the only family on earth that knows who the real God is, and he's still figuring out what this God is like, because our God is nothing like those other gods. And so he's he doesn't know that this is a test. And so let's just you know, be honest that this passage is hard. If you read it, it's hard. If you read the whole thing, you're just like, what is even going on here? And when you read commentaries about it, they all say, no one likes or feels comfortable that God asked Abraham to kill his son. Like, 
it's difficult for us to understand. And it's a very complex story, and we could preach like 10 sermons on why God was asking him to do this, but I'm just going to ask you if you, you know, if that story like kind of derails you, try to hang on with me. So Abraham and Isaac, they go on this journey together, and when they get to the mountain that God says, he ties up Isaac, and he puts him on the altar, and right when he picks up his knife to kill him, God says in verse 12, do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. And then God makes Abraham see like a, a ram or like a sheep in the, in the bushes that God's provided, and so he sacrifices that instead. So what was God's point in doing all this besides giving Isaac a pretty good reason to go to therapy in this series? <laughs> Some scholars believe that at the heart of it, God was teaching Abraham that he would keep all of his promises to Abraham, but it was going to be on God's terms, not Abraham's. And, and God was not being cruel in this. We, we have to keep the bigger picture in mind that Abraham was the patriarch of the Jewish nation. So Abraham's family is the only people who know who God is. And so everything that, that he learns about God is what will be passed down to each successive generation. And because this is the family that God's working through to redeem the whole world to himself, it's important that Abraham knows who God is, knows his heart, knows his character. And we find evidence that in, even in this really hard story, Abraham does understand God's heart. And so let's pick up in Genesis 22, verse 13. It's on the screen for you there. It says, And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And this is what Abraham says about God, that he's a provider. It doesn't say, and Abraham called that place, the Lord is a bully, or the Lord is a tyrant. He said, the Lord is a provider. He understood that it had been a test of trust, and, and that God had provided another way for him. And he understood that what God was working in his heart was to, to teach him how to, to trust God and stop forcing things to happen. Like, you know, having a kid with your wife's maid, and to trust him and trust God's timing. And so in Hebrew, that word provide, like the Lord will provide, at its root it means see. So it can be translated, the God who sees, with the implication of the God who sees the need and provides for it. And so in this moment, Abraham learns that he was fully known by God, and that God was inviting him to know God better. And that desire to be intimately known and cared for is the deepest human need. God created us with a longing to know and be known by himself and by other humans. And nothing satisfies our souls like that knownness. It's like that feeling you get when you when you talk to one of your best friends and you haven't seen them in a while and you're catching up and you don't have to explain any background. They already have your full history and you can just tell them exactly how you're feeling. And it, it just feels so good because they know you, and you know them. And in that moment, Abraham realizes, oh, that's the kind of God you are. You know me, you see me, and I can trust you to provide for me. But of course I think Abraham and Isaac wrestled with this experience for the rest of their lives. It's, it's a mystery, and it's painful, but I also believe that he was 
satisfied because he, he knew God was had purpose in it, and he knew God better from it, and he knew that God knew him. And so this is, you know, the kind of things that happen when, when God calls us to a big, life-altering, like, you've got to be kidding me type of sacrifice like he did of Abraham. And, and Abraham's purpose was more important than anyone else's in the whole world at that time. And when your calling is that big, God can ask some things of you that he wouldn't ask someone else to see if your heart is fully committed. And, and in Abraham's sacrifice of obedience, God was satisfied. Like, yay. But... Has God ever asked you to sacrifice something big? Like, uh, first of all, it's never going to be your firstborn, just in case you're worried about that. It's never going to happen. <laughs> but sometimes what God asks of us feels so painful that we wonder if anything can hurt more in that moment. Sacrifice is painful. It was painful for Abraham to take that trip with Isaac. It, it's painful for us. And so I'm hoping that as God calls you to moments of big sacrifice in your life, you'll be able to see his heart for you and trust him with it. And so I want to, you know, talk about how specifically how this big epic story applies to our life. Because what I propose to you this morning is that whether God's asking you for like a huge sacrifice or just a small everyday sacrifice, what he's getting at is always our hearts. That's always his goal. He's always working to bring us closer to him. He's always working to change us into the person he created us to be. And that's why he asks us to sacrifice for him. And that's why it satisfies us. And so I want to tell you a story about me and about my life and, and how God's worked this out in my life. Because actually, especially when we're in our 20s, we're kind of the ones who, who want to offer something big to God. You know, like, God, I'll do anything for you. Send me. Like, pick me. Pick me. I volunteer as tribute, God. And God is more interested in working on something in our heart that we haven't paid much attention to, but he knows that it's ugly. And if we don't get a handle on it, it could destroy us. And so our, our experience with this was like about a decade ago, Justin and I, were invited by our dearest friends in the world to um, pray and, and think about joining them on the mission field in Pakistan. And this was like pre-Osama bin Laden getting killed in Pakistan. And so it was a big deal to be asked to do that. And so we were like, okay, we'll pray about that. And it was sort of May-ish, and they weren't going to be leaving until January. So we, we decided, okay, we're going to take this summer and like pray about it and sort of discern together if this is the right thing for us. So Every week we would set aside time for a conversation about it, and usually we would talk and pray and cry, and I did most of the crying. <laughs> and when, when a woman is thinking about moving to Pakistan, that has certain really specific, difficult implications. And I wasn't sure I was ready to sign up for it, you know? And so we were praying and talking about it, and the longer we went, Justin felt like sure, like sure than he'd ever been about anything in his life that this is what we were supposed to do. And I was like, I'm not sure, I don't know, you know, and so all the tears. And then as time went on, what I felt like God was speaking to me that was that he wasn't going to give me a direct answer, but he wanted me to trust what he was sharing with Justin and, and follow Justin and let him lead us in this. And so, you know, I, I worked through that and I got on board with it. And so eventually we got to like, okay, we're going to do this. We think this is what God's calling us to do. This is what he has for us. We're going to do it. So we had already the whole time been like talking to our family and friends and pastors about it. But now we got to the point where we're like, okay, we're really doing it. Will you give us your money? <laughs> and so 
that's always where we get all the buck stops. And so as we begin to like have those kind of conversations with our, our family and our friends and our pastors, we started hearing like, guys, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's right. Something's wrong. Like the timing's off or the location or something, but this isn't right. Like we're not, we don't feel good about this. And, you know, we're like, oh, okay, that's confusing. It feels like God's saying something really different. And so we were just, like, wrestling with that. And then it got to the point where our elder board came to us and said, we feel the Spirit saying this is wrong. And if you choose to go ahead with it, we will not support you financially. And that was it. We knew we were dead in the water. Like, if your board doesn't support you, no one else will either. And it was devastating. It was incredibly, incredibly devastating for us. And Justin headed into like a years-long chronic depression, and we felt like our lives were just a, a blank slate with no vision, and it was incredibly painful time. And, you know, there's parts of that where you just think back on and you're like, man, it still hurts. But it's been 10 years almost, and so we've gained perspective. And two things really stick out to me after 10 years about that experience. And those are um, the things that God was working in my heart during that time. The first one was that through the process of God telling me, like, I'm not going to tell you the answer. I want you to trust Justin and let him lead you in this. What, um, what we began to learn about myself was that I was a complete and total control freak. <laughs> I was such a control freak. And I had no idea. Like, you should have seen the leash I had Justin on. It was like, you know, it's probably more like that. It was bad. I wanted to be the boss. I wanted to make all the decisions in our family. And I had no idea I was behaving that way. And God used it to reveal it to me. And I could, I could repent of that and repent to Justin and begin the hard work of trying to like lay down control and I've come a long way in that area and then the other thing that God did in me during that time was that um, during the aftermath like the painful what was that even about God it feels like you tricked us it feels like you hoodwinked us I'm kind of mad at you you know just all that stuff you go through when you're disappointed and what I realized that God showed me was that there was a place in my heart where I didn't believe that God had my best interest in mind. I knew he loved me, but I didn't, I wasn't convinced he had my best interest in mind. I was raised a little too Calvinist, and so I was sure that God had his best interest in mind, but I wasn't sure he had mine. And so God just like revealed that as a lie and began to heal me of that, and I've come a long way in that area too. And, and what I learned from that experience was that those were the sacrifices God wanted all along, you know? He wanted me to give up being the control freak in my marriage. He wanted me to learn to trust him. And, and I wanted to go to Pakistan and give my life for Jesus and wear a burqa. And he wanted, <laughs> he wanted my heart to change. And that was, that was the, the biggest point that he had in that whole thing. It was never about Pakistan. It was about me changing. And after 10 years, I can see that. And I can be really grateful for that experience. And so, you know, it's still hard to think about. And maybe you've been through an experience like that. Maybe you, maybe you really felt like God was telling you to do something, and you stepped out on a limb and took some risk, and it fell flat. And if that has happened to you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It hurts really bad. I know. 
And I just, you know, I, I just pray that over time, you know, if, if maybe you've shut your heart down in that area. Maybe you've just said, I am never doing that again. I'm never taking another big risk for God. And, you know, if that's you, I just, I pray that over time you'll be able to just hand that mystery to God and let him give you perspective on what he was doing in your heart through that, what his purposes were, because his purposes were loving. They were loving, as hard as it was. And so I can look back now and see how God rooting those things out of me brought me closer to God and closer to Justin and kept me from destroying my marriage. And that was what he wanted all along. That was the sacrifice that I offered to God. But, you know, honestly, we don't live most of our lives on that intensity level. That happens a few times in our lives. Praise God that we don't, you know. Praise God that we're not always facing huge decisions. And so... We, we will a few times in our life, but that's not day to day, is it? And so there's, there's two kinds of sacrifice. One is this big, epic sacrifice, and the other is just the small day-to-day -day choices that we make for obedience in our lives. And um, I want to just transition to talking about these small daily sacrifices that we offer to God. And so as we do that, we're going to switch from like super ancient Old Testament-y type stuff to the New Testament, to the Book of Romans. And we're going to look at a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Rome. And that's going to be in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. Okay. It talks about this exact thing. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So let's dig into this a little bit. So Paul's writing this letter to the churches in Rome, and they are made up of Jews and Gentiles, but mostly Gentiles. And these Gentile Christians who are people who came to Jesus out of very pagan cultures. And the Greco-Roman culture was extremely religious. They had a lot of gods, and they performed a lot of animal sacrifices as part of their worship. But here's the thing. In that culture, there was no expectation whatsoever that worshiping the gods would have an effect on your heart or life or would produce change in you of any kind. Religion was about ritual. You went to the temple, you burnt a pinch of incense, you offered a cup of wine, you burnt an animal, and that was it. You weren't supposed to love that God or experience that God's love for you. It wasn't intended to transform your life and heart or anything. It was just ritual. So when Paul says, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done with you, let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind you'll find acceptable, this is the way to worship him. This is exactly what he's talking about. Our God, the true God, the Lord Jesus, he doesn't want you to go through the motions. That's not the kind of relationship Jesus died to have with you. He, he wants your whole self. Paul's saying, Jesus has done everything for you, so now you be a living sacrifice for him. So he's making these formerly pagan people, excuse me, just on my head's kind of small. <laughs> imagine in their minds that instead of going to the temple and sacrificing an animal, it's like they're crawling up on that altar themselves and giving their whole selves to God. 
not unlike the scene of Isaac on the altar. And they would have gotten Paul's point, which is that now, because of Jesus, our whole lives, our whole selves become a sacrifice, a living sacrifice that we offer to God over and over and over. And so if that's what God wants from us, if that's the kind of relationship he wants to have with us, how do we be a living sacrifice? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2, he says, Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. You know who that person is? It's a new version of you who's more like Jesus. Who's more like the image bearer that God created you to be. And the image bearer that Jesus redeemed you to be. That person is a lot closer to how God created you because it's closer to the person that you're going to be in eternity when you're finally perfected. And so then verse 2 continues and says, Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And his will is good and pleasing and perfect for God, but it is also good and pleasing and perfect for you. And by that I mean you will like the end result. When you look back and see what God has made you to be, that you're more like Jesus and closer to who he made you, you will prefer the new you to the old you. But the road to get there is not without sacrifice. And Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 16, 24 and 25 when he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. A couple summers ago, maybe some of you were there, we had a Vineyard uh, Regional Conference here in Mishawaka, and Phil and Jan came, one of our national leaders, and Jan was sharing about how her, her and Phil's life has been a pattern of Jesus calling them to come and see and come and die, which is her way of saying that God has continuously invited them into the adventure that is serving Jesus, but it's also been a calling of dying to self as well. And when she said that, she was referring to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And, and Bonhoeffer was explaining that when we follow Jesus, we choose to die to our selfishness and our instinct to be in control and our need to win. And then as we lay down our old life to Jesus, he gives us a new life that looks more like him and with a greater sense of purpose. And so in losing or sacrificing our life to God, we actually end up saving it. And that's because sacrifice is what satisfies us. When we live a life of sacrifice, we get closer to God and closer to the person he created us to be. And so what, what does it look like? Let's get even more specific. The Bible tells us that. And so let me just tell you the essence. Making sacrifices to God is both the, the praise that we offer to God and the obedience that we offer to God. And so um, let's look first at Hebrews 13, 15. It says, Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And that continual sacrifice of praise is like what we do here on Sundays. But it's also just every time your heart turns to God in affection and you, and you just think, man, Jesus, I love you. Thank you. Thank you for being so good to me, or, or whatever form your affection takes. And, you know, we, pr we praise God by proclaiming allegiance to his name, which would be like telling people about our relationship with God. But it's also a proclamation that we make to our own hearts when we just say something like, Jesus, I'm so glad I belong to you. Father, thank you for choosing me, or however that looks for you. What I think is important is that praise is a way that we love God back. 
He's done so much for us. And the love he has for us is perfect and relentless and unconditional. And when we offer praise to him, we are like taking initiative to cultivate our love for him. And he just responds to that with his love and it deepens our relationship. And, and this is like all of your close relationships. You don't have to say, I love you, but saying it cultivates affection between you and improves your relationships. And so that's one way that we offer praise or sacrifices to God. But Romans 12, which we've been looking at, if you just carry on in that passage, we find other ways that we can be living sacrifices by obeying God and doing things his way. It's a long passage. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to highlight a few things from it. And some of them I'm paraphrasing. Here's some things that Paul says in Romans 12. Don't think you're better than you really are. See yourself as part of the body and use your gifts and skills to serve others. Don't be fake. Don't pretend to love people. Actually love them. Hate what is wrong. Cling to what is good. Be real. Be genuine. Don't be lazy. Work hard. Help people and show hospitality. Pray for people who treat you bad. Learn empathy. Live in peace with people. Love simple people who can't promote your social status. And don't be a know-it-all. A lot of these aren't so much about not doing the wrong things, but about choosing to do the right things. Choosing to love other people really well and to love them the way that Jesus does. And God says that all of these big and sometimes little choices to love people well and do things God's way are sacrifices to him and they please him. He cares about it. So just as we start to wrap up, I want to give you this analogy to, to switch up to. In like ancient nomadic cultures, which would have been like Abraham's time, people would carry a little clay pot, and it was called a fire pot. And they would carry it when they were traveling during the day, so that when they set up camp that evening, they wouldn't have to start a fire from scratch. So they would carry it all day with them, and they'd just add little pieces of wood or, or hay or something to keep that fire burning all day, to keep the embers going. So imagine that you have a little fire pot, and you carry it around all the time. And the fire in it represents your sacrifices of obedience and praise to God. And I want to suggest to you that all of our lives are a sacrifice to God. In the New Bible Dictionary it says, It appears in fact that every act of the spirit-filled man can be reckoned as a spiritual sacrifice. And because our life is filled moment by moment with opportunities to do things God's way instead of our way, our whole lives are like a continuous sacrifice to him. And the best part is the more that we become this continuous sacrifice, not perfectly, you know, not perfectly consistent, but we're doing it, the closer we get to Jesus and the more satisfying he becomes to us. His love, his faithfulness, his kindness, yes, even in calling us to come and die, becomes so sweet and valuable to us that he truly becomes our reward. And he's what makes a life of sacrifice worth it. John Piper said, The supremacy of Christ is not just his perfect fitness to bear our sins and not just the supremely valuable future reward that frees us from fear and greed and worldliness, but in his supremacy, he is also now our present personal treasure. So I just want to encourage you to just keep that fire burning. Add fresh offerings to it constantly because 
sacrifice satisfies God. And it satisfies because when we live a life of sacrifice, we're closer to God and closer to the people he created us to be. Band, if you want to come back up, that'd be great. You know, I'm, I'm not naive. I know that a life of sacrifice is hard, and I know that some of you have gone through things I can't imagine. It takes true grit to live this way. But I believe that it satisfies us because Jesus becomes our treasure. And being close to him is the greatest joy we can experience. When we're in our presence and we see our true selves, we know we're loved, even in our imperfection. And that is truly satisfying. So Jesus will ask you to make a big sacrifice a couple times in your life. And just pray that you're able to say yes. And say yes to the adventure and yes to the pain that comes with it. But Jesus wants your heart, your whole heart, all of you. So mostly what he asks for you to sacrifice is the stuff that's hard for you to let us put, put his finger on. But please do it. And it's okay if it's a journey. He's very patient, but he is persistent. And because you know that he loves you and saves you, you can offer your sacrifices to him. And just say, Jesus, I love you back. I will praise you. And you can offer up that deeply kind and loving self that you have in you, that Jesus is creating out of you. And as you keep your fire pot burning and make all these moment-by-moment sacrifices, we realize that Jesus himself has become our greatest treasure and our reward. So let me just pray for you now. Holy Spirit, come. Come into this place. Oh, Jesus, we want to be living sacrifices for you. We want our whole lives to be transformed into something that looks just like a sacrifice of praise and obedience. Jesus, you are worthy of all of us. We invite you now, afresh and anew, come and have your way in us. Transform us, Lord, into your likeness. We love you so much. We're living our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this message. If you want to find out more, like I said before, you can get on thehubvineyard.com or you can find us on Facebook, The Hub Vineyard Church, and see what we're up to. I pray that um, that you come and visit us sometime or if you, if you need community that you'd come and be a part of what we're doing. But also, if, you know, if you're already part of a church or if you're just on some journey, I just pray blessings over you. I pray for your life. I pray that you find the love that I know you're looking for. And I pray that you find the Father who loves you so much. Have a good week, guys.